Good morning, my name's Rachel and I'm going to be doing the second Bible reading. Uh, this comes from Daniel chapter 1 and it's the full chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these, there were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, keep it open to Daniel 7. If you don't know where Daniel 7 is, it's after Ezekiel. If you don't know where Ezekiel is, it's after Lamentation. If you don't know where that is, look up the contents. Or if you're cheating, just use your phone. Uh, well, we are looking at Daniel, and I'm very excited about considering this uh, with us as a church family. But let's turn to God once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider the story of Daniel and his friends, help us to see that the God who ruled and reigned then is the same God who rules and reigns today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are embarking on a journey as we study the book of Daniel. It is a book of riveting heroism. 
It is a book of firm convictions, principled living, outrageous courage, and steadfast faithfulness. And of course, it is also a book where we find fascinating dreams and visions that just captures our intrigue. And of course, it's also the book that gave the English language some of the sayings and idioms we know of, such as feet of clay. That's from chapter 2. Burning fiery furnace, that's chapter 3. The writing is on the wall, that's chapter 5. Weighed in the balance and found wanting, chapter 5. And of course, in the lion's den, chapter 6. But beyond merely the stories and the dreams and what we remember from the children's story of Daniel with the lion, this is a book that will help us all today live distinctively and faithfully to God in a world that is set itself up against God. And if this past week in our Victorian Parliament is anything to go by, I'm not sure about you, but when you heard that news, that it was past 27 to 9, did your heart sink a little bit? I know mine did. Extremely disappointing that even, even our personal prayers can be policed. And that is why this is the book we need today. And why is that? It is because this book, though it was written about a different people in a different time and place of human history, it is a book that will help us see behind the scenes of human history, behind the scenes of every ruler and king and emperor and president and premier, behind the scenes of every kingdom and empire, not just during the time of Daniel, but even today, because it will help us see the world from God's divine perspective. It will help us see beyond what the human eye can see. And that is the nature of the type of genre we find in the book of Daniel. The type of genre is it's called an apocalyptic genre, which means it is a revelation. It is revealing what is hidden, what the human eye can't see. It is an unveiling, which is like the curtain is open so that we can go behind the scenes of the world stage. Which means, just like what we saw in the quiz before, more than being a book about Daniel and his friends, this is a book about God, about what God is doing and about what God will do. And so let's have a look. We'll look at chapter 1 today. Now the year was 605 BC. And so to put that into perspective, that's about 600 years before the coming of Christ, about 2,600 years ago. And for the people of God, all that could have gone wrong did go wrong. By this time, the kingdom that was once united under King David was a pale shadow of its former glory. The northern kingdom, ten tribes up in the north, destroyed, decimated by the Assyrian Empire. Gone. Down in the south, only two tribes left, the kingdom of Judah. And things went from bad to worse. They were now sort of like a vassal state of Egypt. They were weak. And their king, King Jehoiakim, 
was evil and weak. Now we have to remember what they would have been feeling when they were experiencing this as they were seeing the chariots and the troops and the soldiers come and lay siege to their land. What would they have, what would they have been thinking? Now remember they were the people of God. They were the people of the covenant promises. They were meant to experience the blessings of God, blessings of greatness, blessings of being a great nation, blessings of having their own land so that they might worship their God in. And look how it went south. Verse 1, have a look with me. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and lay siege to it. A foreign power has come in and conquered. Now you just have to imagine what the people of God were thinking. In distress, in desperation, this must not be. How could this be? We are the people of God. We are the people of the covenant promises. Where is God in all of this? And perhaps sometimes we might feel that way as well as Christians today. What's happening in our world? Where is God in all of this? Now, just before we think that God has failed his people or that God was too weak to protect his people or God stopped caring for his people, notice whose idea it was. Look at verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. And so who's doing? Whose idea? It was the Lord's doing. And so do you see how throughout the book of Daniel we get to go behind the scene. We see that it was God's intention from the human perspective. It just seemed like Babylon was just too powerful for Judah and they conquered but behind the power of Nebuchadnezzar was the power of God himself. It was God who handed him over. And they were handed over as an act of judgment on a nation that had turned its back against God. But yet, in the story of Daniel, we'll see that God will nonetheless establish his kingdom. Behind the scenes then, and behind the scenes now, God still reigns. Now on a human level, do you see what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do here in the first two verses? He not only conquered Judah, but he wanted them to lose their identity. He wanted to destroy their identity. You see, when you separate a people group from their land, from their religion, from their God, from their culture, they lose their identity. And that's why not only did he take the vessels from the temple of God to Babylon, he eventually destroyed the temple so that now you people, you've got nowhere to worship your God. Your religion is gone. And then he exiled the people from their land, separated the people from their land. That's how you lose your identity. They were captured and sent off to a foreign land. Now that happened in three phases. 605 BC, which was when Daniel and his friends and the elite and the nobles were taken away. 597 BC and 586 BC, when the temple was eventually destroyed. 
And so here we see the first of these phases. Only the elite and only the good-looking ones. Look at verses 3 to 4. The king ordered Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. Now, why do you think the king did that? He was very smart to put in that plan. You see, they were the cream of the crop, but yet young enough. And like in the quiz, they were teenagers, in their teens. Not exactly sure, perhaps 15, 16, 17, years 8, years 9, year 10. Still very young. Why? Well, they were young enough to be malleable so that they could be indoctrinated with the new culture, with a new worldview, with a new religion, learning a new language, having a new lifestyle with the finest food of the royal courts. And they were even given new names. And they were trained at the University of Babylon. Why? It was in the hope that they would lose their identity and become one of them. Now, what is worth understanding about the Babylonian culture was that it was so foreign and alien to the people of God. Now, the people of God, they believe in one true God who made the universe simply by speaking. The Babylonian worldview, they believed in many gods and the universe, the world, people came about because of the battles between the gods. They believe in many truths, not one absolute truth. They believe in many ways to live morally as opposed to the people of God. There is one right moral way to live. Now what does that sound familiar with? Does it sound a lot like the world we live in today? You see, we live in a world that does not know God. We live in a world, a strange world, that we'll call evil good and good evil. We live in a world where, from this week onwards, we'll criminalize some prayers. We live in a world where the only absolute is that there is no absolute. We live in a world that teaches you must be tolerant, except if it feels intolerant to me. We live in a world where morality means whatever goes, there is no morality, even if it is so depraved. We live in a world where the normal family unit is that there is no more normal. We live in a world where you are encouraged to not call the one you married husband or wife, but partner. We live in a world where children are taught they can change their gender on a whim and to get their bodies to do what it's not meant to do. That is the world we live in. And so life for Daniel, Sadrach, Meshach and Abednego in this foreign land feels a lot like Christians living in Australia. And it's very easy to lose our identity. And so how do you survive? How do you live in a world like ours and survive as a Christian? 
Well, we learn from Daniel. By being distinct from the world, by being different from the world. Now, being different, not by being obnoxious or a clown, no one likes that. But by being distinct and different, by remaining faithful to God. You see, it's very easy to live in this world and not be distinct, to go to either extremes, you know, the two ends. On one end, it's very easy to just totally accept the new culture, the new worldview, the new religion, the new language, completely conform to the new way of life, just a giving, blending, and there is no difference at all. Very easy. And I suspect there may have been some of the elite noble teenagers from Judah who did just that. Being brought to Babylon thinking, this is great. We're getting an excellent, excellent education. We're learning about the stars and astrology. We never got to do that back home. We're eating the finest food. It is good living. Let's just conform. This is good for us. But wouldn't that be the fears of many of us who are parents for our little ones, for our children, for our teenagers, that as our children are living in this world, in our city, fed a diet of Netflix and Hollywood, up watching daytime TV, bold and beautiful, what they learn from that, I do not know. Now, isn't it the fear that their lives would turn out exactly like what they watch. Shallow relationships, broken marriages, dysfunctional families, and no fear of God. But some would choose. Let's just conform. Let's just blend in. On one end, you have the conforming ones. But then on the other end, you have those who would completely withdraw from society, And so you produce a a Christian bubble, a Christian huddle, where we're completely separated from all things society. Only Christian books, only Christian movies, only Christian schools, only Christian friends completely withdraw. And so do you conform or do you completely withdraw? Well, you've got a third option, and that was what Daniel chose. You see, Daniel and his group of friends... Perhaps at this university they were studying at set up the, the first Christian Union group and having a discussion amongst his friends. Well, not everything about Babylon is bad. We're happy to have our names change. We're happy to study at this place. We won't believe everything we learn, but we're happy to study here and learn it. And certainly not everything about Babylon is good. There are lines we have to draw. There are moral lines we must not pass if we are to show our allegiance to God first, if we are not to compromise on our faithfulness to God. And so you can just imagine him and his friends. We are in this place. We are in Babylon, but we are not of Babylon. We are to be distinct by remaining faithful to God. Now, what was the issue that Daniel and his friends decided was the issue, was the line we must not cross. We must not give in. We must not compromise, otherwise we've compromised our faith. What was the issue about food? Now, we might be thinking, Daniel, why food? Why why pick that issue? Isn't that such a small issue? Why not pick something 
big, some theological issue to stand your ground on, something more serious, but food? But it was food, and why? Because for Daniel, it was a moral line for him. Now, we're, exact, we're not exactly sure what was the issue about food. It may have been that it broke some Old Testament food laws. It may have been that the food was offered to idols. We don't know for sure, but what we do know was that Daniel thought, I'll be defiled if I eat of this and partake in it. I'll be defiled and I'll lose my distinctiveness. And so Daniel thought, I will not do it. So verse 8 we read, Daniel determined that he will not defile himself with the king's food or with the, or with the wine he drank. And so he asked for permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Now you see, Daniel publicly, boldly, remember he's just a teenager. Imagine the teenagers in our church standing up to an authority like that, saying, I will show my allegiance to my God first and foremost. And this is a line I'm unwilling to cross. Remember, he was a teenager. Makes us think, doesn't it, how many of our young people, the, the teenagers that we train up, disciple, that parents, you disciple, how many of them will go out into this world with such convictions, knowing where the line is and knowing what I will not cross? You see, food may be a small issue at this point, but it was a big issue because he would be defiled by it. And Daniel, he made this decision to be distinct and faithful. And what this eventually led on to is 70 years later, the story of the lion's den. It prepared him for that. And in a sense, that is true for us as well. Unless we remain distinct and faithful as Christians with the smaller issues, you know, the after-work drinks, as the colleagues get drunk, will I join in? Or is that a line I'm unwilling to cross? Or the bunch of friends who watch a movie that is more than inappropriate, will I join in? Or is that a line I'm unwilling to cross? Or my tax accountant telling me, you can claim a lot more, no one will find out. Will I accept? Or is that a line I will not cross? Or my workplace turning a blind eye to something that's unethical, Will I too join in and turn a blind eye? Or is that a line I'm unwilling to cross? You see, unless we remain distinct and decisive as Christians with the smaller issues of life, there is no way we'll survive the lion's den. But Daniel here, he was no fool. He did not overturn the tables and made a big scene, storming out, slamming the door and saying, I'm not eating this royal food. He did it wisely and with tact. And at the same time, we go behind the scenes. You see what God did in the heart of the eunuch. Verse 9, God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. And so then we read on verses 11 to 12. So Daniel said to the guard, from whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. 
Now, if you're reading this and you're a bit like me, you're thinking, what are you doing, Daniel? Why would you make that a task for yourself, eating only vegetables? Now, you must understand this is not a lesson to teach us that we must all become veg veg vegetarians. Even that word is hard to say. <laughs> Let me put that straight. It was, of course, something that defiled him. It would have meant compromise and conformity. And so what happened? Verse 15. At the end of the ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. Now, how do you know that it was a miracle? That God intervened somehow? How do you know? Well, simply because they ate vegetables and they looked healthier. I'm not sure if that happens in real life. In fact, last year under lockdown, we tried it for a week as a family with the intention of really teaching our kids contentment. So we only had bland vegetables for a whole week. Though there was one meal, we had a little bit of chicken, but it was almost like vegetable. It was a hard week. And by the end of the week, we did not look any better or healthier. <laughs> only a lot more hungrier. And then we ate a cow. But the faithfulness of Daniel and his three friends, they were blessed by God. And so how do you live in a world that is so foreign? By being distinct and faithful to God. Neither compromising nor withdrawing, but yet living where my allegiance is to God first and foremost. But now we must ask, what was it about them? I mean, they were only teenagers. What was it about them that enabled them to live in such a way? They were only teenagers. Everything around them would have pushed them to conform and the, the pressure cannot be underestimated. How did they have that conviction, that fortitude to stand their ground and to always keep their allegiance to God first? How could they have done that? It makes you think, doesn't it? If, let's just say, something like that were to happen today in our church, where all the teenagers of our youth group, the 40 or so that were there on Friday, taken away, snatched away and placed in a foreign land, will they survive? Away from their youth leaders, away from their mums and dads who are meant to teach them and disciple them, away from the church and the Bible teaching, Will they survive in a foreign land with a foreign culture and different gods and they are the only Christians? I mean, how confident can we be that they would neither compromise nor withdraw? Will they survive? But if you think about it, isn't that what happens every single day when our little ones go to class and they're the only Christian in the classroom. When they play with their friends and everyone else believes in something else. When they are indoctrinated by Hollywood and popular culture and social media. Will they survive? Or are they surviving as distinct and faithful to God? But how did Daniel and his friends survive? 
Well, they remained distinct and faithful to God because they knew of God's faithfulness to them. What God says, he will do. What God promises, he will fulfill. And we see God's faithfulness to them here in how God blessed them. And again, we go behind the scenes. God knew what he was doing, and so God kept them close. And God gifted them. Look at verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. Such that after they graduated, they graduated at the top of the class. After being interviewed by the king, they were found in verse 20, 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And so the story, captives, uni students, now top graduates in the king's service. God honoured their faithfulness to God by showing his faithfulness to them. And so how did they survive? By being distinct and faithful to the faithful God. And so it calls the question, us. What about us? And what about you? If you reflect on your life now, does it show a life where you are completely withdrawn from society? You don't engage with this world that does not believe God. Or does your life show that you have completely conformed with society? No different, completely blended in, and we can just not tell the difference. Or is your life distinctively Christian? Distinctively Christian. Does it reveal an inner conviction of the gospel, of the things of God? Are there lines you know beforehand you know you will not cross because it will mean your faith is compromised? Is your allegiance to Jesus first and foremost known amongst your colleagues, amongst your school friends, amongst your family? Do they know that? Is it observable from your life by the way you speak? by the things you value, by the pursuits you have, by the hope you have, by how you relate, by your relationships, that anyone looking upon your life, they can say, this is a man or this is a woman who has principles, who has gospel principles, who knows when to say yes, who knows when to say no, whom I can see thriving in this world, but yet looks like this man or woman is living for a higher calling. Or could it be true that for many of us, all that makes us stand out as Christians is coming to this service each week? Only 90 minutes and the rest of the week is unaffected. Can that be true? And for some, even committing to church each week is compromised by other priorities. You see, if Daniel and his friends were able to remain faithful to God in a foreign land, we have all the more reason to, because we have seen the faithfulness of God 
far more fully than what Daniel and his friends saw. Though the things of God remain often hidden behind the scenes, God still rules and reigns, there has already been a large unveiling. The curtain has already been opened because how has God shown his faithfulness? In the sending of his own precious son from heaven to earth to live in this world, to establish the everlasting kingdom, one that will never fail, the one who came to show how to live distinctively as the salt and light of the world, and of course the one who gave his life for us, to show that our allegiance is to him, because his allegiance is first to us. And so tomorrow, as you go about your day, whether that's the classroom, whether that's the office, whether that's the shops, will you go out like a Daniel, courageous, with deep gospel convictions, distinct and faithful to God? You stand out. Or will you go out not knowing who you are and you're just like everyone else? And if this past week is anything to go by in our Victorian Parliament, remaining distinct and faithful to God will only get harder and harder for us. It will get harder. Because what you believe will be dismissed as intolerant. What you value will be mocked as quaint. The Lord you show your allegiance to is completely and often ridiculed in society. And as you start to one day, God forbid it won't happen, but I sense that it might, as you start to see that one day Christians are dragged to court because of their faith, what will you do? Will you cross the line and blend in? Or will you still be like a Daniel, distinct, and faithful to the God who is faithful to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to see that behind all the affairs of this world, behind the world stage of human history, you still rule and reign, and you are establishing your everlasting kingdom. So convict our hearts, we pray, that seeing your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ, that we do remain distinct and faithful, unashamed of the Lord who died for us. And so give us strength and courage to live each day standing up for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.